I'm Harry Bridge. I'm Scott Mitchell. And this is the Dharma Realm Podcast. We are coming to you from the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Realm Podcast for May 18th, 2018. And today we're talking about academic study versus practice. So uh, we've gotten a lot of questions. Thank you. Uh, over the last couple of months. Um, so I think we're going to talk about a couple of we're going to talk around a couple of those questions, not sort of address them directly, but one of them had to do with a uh, distinction the questioner made between the study of Buddhism versus the practice of Buddhism. And the question, I think, was coming directly out of a um, sort of Western academic context. Um, so I think study or academic study in that sense referenced how scholars of Buddhism study Buddhism um, and how that might be different from how uh, practitioners practice Buddhism, um, and whether or not one should do one or the other, or preference, uh, um, privilege one or the other, or, or, or what. Um, so I, we're going to talk about that. I have I mean, some, I have some yeah. feelings. I mean, one of the basic questions is, well, what do you mean by academic study? Yeah. 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 Right. And, and I think the, the implication in this, for a couple of things. First, I think the implication of, of setting up that dichotomy assumes that, uh, academic study is necessarily different from practice. It's a different kind of activity, um, and that might be the case, um, uh, is one issue. But the other issue implied in the question was that one necessarily, in an academic setting, studies something that one doesn't believe in or is not studying the, the religious tradition that they're a part of, so to speak. Um, and subtly, you know, you're studying this thing to sort of like dissect it basically right to be objective and impartial mm-hmm. and to look at this thing and be critical of it and and, and being critical of it um, does that somehow uh, undermine your your faith or your practice right like if you if you do too much academic work basically are you gonna um, convince yourself not to be religious I guess it was, I, I'm I'm speculating here mm-hmm. and so I think those are some of the issues at play um, so because there is the the idea of the scholar practitioner, yeah, right. That isn't a new one, but um, because there have been scholar priests for centuries in Christianity and in Buddhism and probably other religions as well, right? And actually, academia kind of grew. Didn't academia probably grew out of that, those kind of? Um, well, maybe not necessarily, but I could see how. Oh um, yeah, no, absolutely. Of, Western right? academia grew out of a religious context. I yeah. mean, when uh, you know, it's it's we're recording this during graduation season. And yesterday, I went to the graduation ceremony at the GTU, and I had to wear my academic robes. And IBS graduation will be next week, and you know, um, those academic robes were because those were priestly robes. Like mm-hmm. those those robes that you see during graduation descended from priestly robes mm-hmm. uh, from you know five hundred, six hundred years ago when you know, you universities were created to, to do religious studies, basically. Mm-hmm. Not religious studies, but theology. Mm-hmm. Like Harvard and yeah. Yukoku University yeah. and sister schools yeah. or whatever I mean, founded f- When Harvard time. was first founded, it was a divinity school. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only degree you got was a degree in theology. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, might, that, that might have meant that you studied science as we know it, uh, but that was the degree, right? So there's definitely a relationship between mm-hmm. Um, academic study and religion in the in the mm-hmm. Western Christian context, mm-hmm. uh, history there. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the modern period, I think that um, 
particularly with Buddhist studies, is that uh, in the late 1800s and the beginning of the 20th century, a new discipline of religious studies started to develop Mm -hmm. that necessarily wanted to distinguish itself from theology. And it it basically said, you know, religious studies is rooted in psychology and in um, philosophy and sociology and anthropology and all these other disciplines. It's not concerned with theological questions. And when Buddhist studies developed as a sort of subdiscipline within religious studies, Buddhist studies was rooted in that tradition, mm-hmm. in religious studies. So mm-hmm. in the West, the early, you know, first hundred years or so of Buddhist studies, you know, these, those, those guys weren't scholar practitioners. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a couple of people who might have been interested in the practice of Buddhism, um, but for the most part, most of the people who were engaged in Buddhist studies were coming at it from an outsider's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until later in the 20th century, mid-20th century, and, and particularly into um, the latter half of the 20th century that more, um, more people would identify as Buddhists and also be Buddhist scholars. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles Prebish, a, a well-known scholar of American Buddhism, had a book written uh, 99, I think, called Luminous Passage, and he talks about how there was still hostility within Buddhist studies against people who identified as scholars practitioners. Right, right. And that price still exists to in a some, extent, in some parts, right? yeah, There's absolutely. an idea that if you're a practitioner, you can't be a scholar of that. You can't study your own tradition because you're not objective. Right. So your 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 study is fundamentally flawed, right? Not everyone believes that, but if you're in if you're going if you're thinking of going into academia, I think you need to be kind of clear on that for yourself and understand that that could potentially be an issue for hiring. Maybe you know that some yeah, places I mean, might not hire on, you yeah, if you self-identify depends. as a scholar practitioner, right. or uh, and it depends on totally on where yeah. what kind of work you want to do. I mean, you know, there are scholars at Cal, for example, that you know. Ca- the University of California, Berkeley, is, is has a Buddhist program, a Buddhist studies program, and it's not theological based, right? Like, you know, they're not interested in, in studying Buddhism for any personal religious reasons. But some of the scholars who work for that program are self-identified Buddhists, mm-hmm. so they just have to sort of separate those two aspects of their lives. Um, the academic side versus the practitioner side. And, you know, I won't speculate on how people do that or what that means um, for them as individuals, but Mm -hmm. that's just a choice that you'd have to make if that was the kind of career you wanted to have, um, you know, versus a different kind of institution um, where... Ryukoku University. Yeah. So there's a classic example that a lot of the um, late 19th, early 20th century study of Buddhism was fueled by... Japanese scholars, many of them Shinshu, but not all, mm-hmm. who were at Ryukoku University or Otani University or whatever, right? They're at these theological seminary university kind of places, right? And and scholar practitioners and their study. Some were um, Buddhist study scholars, so they weren't studying Shinshu. They were studying Yogacara or whatever. But others were um, Jodo Shinshu Buddhists studying Pure Land Buddhism, yeah. right? So um, And that goes back centuries Right and um, is still so. The, so so that's an example of where scholar practitioner um, is a viable path, and you yeah, know, that that's absolutely. built into it, kind of right. Yeah. And that there are many. Most of my teachers, I think, when I was at Yukoku, were also um, temple ministers, mm-hmm. and Priests, some of them so. had to go home on the weekends or you know for a funeral. You know that they 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 lived two three hours away from Kyoto and they did their temple thing and they taught at Yukoku University so um so it's kind of interesting it's like it's it's not 
so, so yeah, so it's just to be realize that there are these different versions of academia, yeah. <laughs> different understandings of academia, and to just um, understand that that layer is functioning all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. At the same time, you know, I, I think that it's worth sort of looking at what that, looking back at that distinction between practice and 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 academic study, right? And there's implied there there's this this assumption that that academic study is different than practice right or is mm-hmm. not itself a practice mm-hmm. and i i wouldn't say that that all academic study is the same as practice but i would say that academic study is a kind of practice um can be it can be no i think I, i'm gonna say oh, i see what you're saying always is that that academic study is not merely just an intellectual mm-hmm. exercise you know scholars don't sit around you know smoking pipes and and you know with their tweed jackets and you know thinking big thoughts like that <laughs> you know doing academic work is an actual it's actual work it's an, it is in and of itself a behavior it's a practice mm-hmm. it's something that you learn how to do and you keep doing it and um, you know maybe get better at it or worse at it or whatever um, it is a practice it's a it's an activity mm-hmm. in that sense of the term mm-hmm. um, so we kind of moved into the other side of the equation of what is practice <laughs> yeah, right which right. is important i mean that's and that's a great question and it's really an important question and, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so yeah so what is practice yeah go and well the important thing to know is that practice also is multivalent and has many different levels or layers or or different kinds of practice mm-hmm. um, i think and so um, we've been referencing who who wrote the article in the uh, what's the book carl bielfeld, carl bielfeld. Um, there's a great book called critical terms for the study of buddhism go buy it um, <laughs> Carl I use Bielfeld, it for one of my classes. And, yeah, and yeah. Carl Buffel has a great article in here just called "Practice" and um, goes through different meanings of the term um, from practice as something that you do to get better at, like you know, you're practicing a musical instrument or practicing a sport or something, with the hopes of gaining proficiency sometime in right. the future or increasing your proficiency. Right. And you know, academic study I think is a practice in that sense. Um, uh, he also has the idea of practice versus theory. Which is um, mm-hmm. theory is um, thinking well, about stuff versus doing stuff. I guess um, I'll just you know I have the book I should read it. <laughs> um, practice we contrast with theory. Practice as in what is practical or what is applied. Um, whereas uh, and and here he mentions that. Um, uh, practice is, is different from theory in the sense that in order to really understand uh, a particular Buddhist doctrine or a particular Buddhist theory, one has to actually do it. So you can sit around and read the sutras, mm-hmm. um, but to really understand it, you need to actually go out and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an interesting perspective, to be sure, um, or an interesting way of, of understanding that distinction between theory and practice. And this is this is one of those areas where I think thinking through you know, setting aside what what practice means in a Buddhist context for a second, I think it's worth sort of thinking through whether or not academic academic study can also be a practice in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is it is it worth sort of considering the possibility that that actually doing academic work, you know, translating texts or thinking about Buddhist ideas or writing academic papers or or whatever else, or teaching for teaching is also part of academic work. Um, if, if any of that stuff could be understood as part of a, a religious or Buddhist practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, mm-hmm. um, I think it can be, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's you know certainly been a part of my practice you know a lot of what i feel like motivates me in terms of why i study what i study is not purely because i'm you know a geeky intellectual who wants to think big important thoughts or write expensive books that no one's ever going to read um, <laughs> but you know i'm motivated by a particular buddhist perspective mm-hmm. um and and i think that there's there's value in that, and I think that there's there's a history to that within the tradition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, before we started recording, we're talking about Shinran and his Kyogo Shinsho. You know, Shin, Shinran studied. Shinran, you know, he didn't. He wasn't an academic in the modern sense that we that we know today. But you can't write a a, a treatise like Kyogo Shinsho without, you know, being deeply engaged in in theory and mm-hmm. reading texts and thinking big thoughts and interesting ideas and trying to work it out. I mean mm-hmm. that that's i think to be valued and sort of um recognized as a potentially legitimate practice not something that's separate from necessarily or as opposed to a different kind of buddhist practice then if you know then what do we mean by buddhist practice and what's the mm-hmm. point of buddhist practice and blah 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 which mm-hmm. is you your turn <laughs> <laughs> well yeah Let's talk about some of the other ideas of practice, though, just while we're here. Like, just right. the kind of like practicing Christian, or like kind of, um, I forget the term he uses, but it's, you know, there's that term of practice as, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, get the book out. I um, the practice that we associate with active engagement or regular right. participation in a right. vocation or calling. Right. It's like, I'm a practicing Buddhist, mm-hmm. or, yeah. Yeah. Which I think we I hear a lot, right? People, in mm-hmm. fact, people regularly ask me if I'm a practicing Buddhist, mm-hmm. and um, I have a hard time answering that question mm-hmm. because I don't know what they mean by practicing. Yeah, do they mean this sense? Yeah, or I mean this sense when he when he talks about when Bielfeld says, uh, you know, the sense we have in mind when we say that someone is a practicing Christian, even that seems really vague to me. What does it mean to be a practicing Christian? Right, like. Does that mean you do certain things? Right. Does that mean that you engage in certain behavior? That you go to church on Sunday? That you you know celebrate Christmas as a religious holiday, not just giving right. your kid presents? Or that's you know where what the I mean? term like, practice can be confusing. Yeah. Because it's like, do you mean practice in the terms of you do stuff, or does it mean I'm Christian? Yeah. As opposed to nominal Christian, like I grew up as a nominal Christian. Right. I felt somehow that I was Christian as a kid, kind of on a very low level and nominal meaning in name only mm-hmm. right um but never went to church never picked up a bible never heard about it from my parents never you know so yeah. so yeah. in that sense i wasn't a practicing christian because i wasn't doing christian things so is it about what you right. do or it's about what you believe or <laughs> right and so that's another one though too practice versus theory yeah which we might have already talked about but right but also know. practice versus principle was which mm-hmm. is the other thing that, that Bielfeld mentions which is um what people do in practice which is what they're actually doing versus what they should be doing, which is the principle, right? So in the Christian context, right, like people will say, oh, well, you know, so-and-so is not behaving like a true Christian because Mm -hmm. they're not doing X, right? So like Mm -hmm. they're making a distinction between actual behavior versus, you know, ideal behavior. And I think that happens in Buddhism too, right? Mm -hmm. I've had this conversation with people who are like, oh, you aren't a vegetarian? Aren't Buddhists supposed to be vegetarian? And it's like, well, let's have that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Or all there was a book that came out about um, Buddhism and violence or something, yeah, and yeah, yeah, and yeah. Peop- the comments were like, "This is this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Buddhists are peaceful, right? <laughs> and you know, and this idea of what Buddhists are supposed to be like versus what they actually do. Or monks, monks never touched money, 
Mm-hmm. So if there's, you know, so, so yeah, that, that's so, just not true. You know, but well, the, the whole thing of <laughs> Chopin and Gregory Chopin and, you know, archaeological remains, <laughs> finding money making machines in the ruins of a monastery. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, but monks don't do that. And it's like, well, the texts say they're not supposed to do that. But what really actually happened? Right. The whole thing with stupas, too. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. you know, are monks not involved with that at all? Or, um, so, so there's that aspect. But then there's another aspect of Buddhist practice. Mm-hmm. that I personally think is really important and that Buddhism has built into it rhetoric of practice in a different sense than these. Practices as means to an end, right? Practices as um, part of what you do to attain an awakening or so, to advance on the path. So teriological point. Oh, see, yes, teriological practices. I, I just wanted to throw it a two-bit yeah, word. Another, since, yeah. I, since I'm a geeky <laughs> academic, I figured I'd... <laughs> So soteriological meaning uh, coming from a, a different context, a Christian context of what leads towards salvation. Um, so in a, in a Buddhist sense, you know, practice that leads toward nirvana or awakening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and that to me is part of Shinshu rhetoric in the sense that for us, the Nembutsu isn't a practice. It's a meta practice. It's not a means to an end. It's not something... Now, in other kinds of Pure Land, absolutely. You have to say it a certain number of times. Uh, you have to say it in the right way. The right um, you have to do it with attention. other practices. Um, there's other practices that get mentioned, like building stupas and Buddha images and making offerings and doing good deeds. And, right? So the, the three Pure Land Sutras are, have all these really interesting references to the various things you have to do in order to do it right and get to the goal of birth in the Pure Land in this case. And I think a lot of Buddhist texts um, have that. And then maybe Mahayana Buddhism, though, is where they kind of problematize even that, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, uh, you know, that Shinshu and maybe Zen too, right? You're not sitting in meditation in order to get to some future goal. Sitting is awakening, right? <laughs> the path is the goal, right? And that's a very Mahayana thing to collapse, radically collapse things where the practice is no, you're no longer um, on this gradual path towards a, an end at some point in the future. It's like, maybe there's something you can do, some way you can be where, boom, that's it. It's all been radically collapsed into each moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's another level of, of practice, I think, that, that goes on. And so in Shinshu, it's problematized. Because if you're doing things as a practice, hoping if I'm good, maybe someday I'll get to the Pure Land. If I'm saying Nembutsu enough times, um, then maybe I'll get to the Pure Land at some point, right? And that Shinran really seems to not like that idea um, or, or goes beyond it, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it is for this reason that the, the, the Nembutsu is not a practice, um, he says in Tani Sho, or is reported as saying in Tani Sho. And um, so... Yeah. Self-power practice versus other power comes into and yeah, um, and, I, and I guess my the thing that I the thing that I want to ask and this isn't a to be contrary or to argue. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to argue. With yeah, you. of course. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that I always think about when when we get to this point of you know Shinran is problematizing practice and whatnot, I, I always get the sense that what Shinran is. That one that one could make the argument that one of the things that Shinran is actually talking about is what practice still works at this mm-hmm. particular point mm-hmm. in history, right? Mm-hmm. For certain kinds of people, mm-hmm. right? So this is where Mapo or the age of the declining Dharma comes in, which is not just that you know the world's going to hell, but that people are no longer um, 
uh, able to do certain kinds of practices, the path of sages, for example. So I think that historically in Buddhism, you know, yeah, Mahayana does this, this, you know, lots of rhetorical things about collapsing the, the path, but also historically lots of different Buddhist lineages and Buddhist teachers or, or whatnot would make very clear claims of, or arguments that this practice works better than this practice, <laughs> um, or yeah. that this practice is more appropriate for this class of people than this practice, and that you know that you know even you know you know what I mean. There's all these all these different kinds of ways in which different right. different practices get categorized or put into hierarchies or, or apply to different groups of people. And it seems like what Shinran is doing, and one could argue, is that we've reached a point where nothing works anymore. Yeah. Um, so what we need to do is this practice the pure land practice. Now, I just want to just sort of think about what that might mean in terms of where, not not that we're necessarily like, that we are actually in the age of Mapo or whatever, but just to sort of think about who is the object mm-hmm. in Shinran's thought. Like, mm-hmm. who is he talking to, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, and, and is he saying that? Or is it still possible to do other kinds of practices? You know, I would say for part of it is that Shinran, for Shinran, yeah, this is, Jodo Shinshu is a kind of Buddhism for people incapable of practice. So if you're incapable of proper practice, because practice isn't only the act, it's also the intention behind the act. Mm-hmm. And if you're incapable of that, then you, there's nothing you can do and you're pretty much damned. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, here's this path. Yeah. where it's not your practice. It's not self-power practice. It's other power. The practice has already been accomplished by Dharmakara Bodhisattva, by Amida Buddha. And that, so the energy is not something you need to generate. It's not something you need to do. It's already been done. And you have to realize that, <laughs> awaken to that kind of. Um, so, so it's interesting, yeah. So that you know, practice requires certain things. It requires that you're able to do it properly, that you're able to generate the proper intention, um, that you're able to have the time to do it. Um, that you have the karmic um, uh, circumstances that allow you to do it, whether um, socially or economically or mentally or whatever, right? So he kind of takes it out of that because the people he's talking to are people who weren't allowed to even do it, really. You're not able to participate in the proper rituals to, to um, do this or the, the be able to take the time off. A peasant couldn't like go yeah. on a week retreat or something, or, right? So, or even a day retreat because you're just working so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, that's one aspect of it. I question the Mapo thing to a certain yeah. extent because Shinran didn't think that this was the practice only for Mapo. Mm. He puts it back to the time of the proper Dharma too, Chobo, um, that, that Nagarjuna is in the proper, the, the true Dharma time, and yet even Nagarjuna is recommending it, right? So, so I think for Shinran, I personally don't emphasize Mapo too much um, because I because I think Shinran saw this as the, the true practice for all time. <laughs> um, you know, and the Buddhas have been saying Amida Buddha's name for... Yeah. I just wanted to get you riled up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that incapability is, is one of the key, yeah, yeah. key aspects. Yeah. But then, so then I think to me, the, the, one of the questions is, so do Shin Buddhists do anything? Mm. And yeah, Shin Buddhists do a lot of things, and you know that um, there's still ritual, mm-hmm. um, there's still study, uh, and yet I think that those aren't seen as requirements on the path, whereas in other types of Buddhism maybe they would be. 
right? And so um, there, I think that the daily practice or ritual practice is transformed in Shinshu. And it's no longer instrumental of we do this so that we can get that. It's more um, expressive, and it's amusing terms from uh, somebody. <laughs> um, we'll put oh, it in man, the I text. Love somebody. Yeah, <laughs> um, the anthropologist um, studying the um, Burmese Buddhism, um, and uh, it, rather than it being a means to an end, right, that instead it expresses one's gratitude, um, praise of the expresses praise of the Buddha. Um, you know that it's mm-hmm. it's transformed. So uh, we do a lot of the same things that other Pure Land Buddhists, other of Honen's disciples were doing, like chanting sutras and bowing and um, offering incense, and right? And yet we're not doing it maybe for the same reasons of, I'm doing this in order to enact my salvation. I'm doing this so that I will be born in the Pure Land. Mm-hmm. It's realizing, whoa, my birth has already been assured because of Amida Buddha. Mm-hmm. So I'm still going to do the same stuff, but it's different now. Yeah, and it's really interesting because everything that you're talking about is is going back to that idea of principle versus practice, mm-hmm. right? Like a lot of it, a lot of this has to do with that sense of like, oh well, in Shin Buddhism we shouldn't be doing anything, we don't need to do anything, so mm-hmm. why do all this ritual stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, well, that's 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 that that's that 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 fundamental dichotomy, right, between what you're supposed to be doing versus what you are doing, you know. Yeah, there's no there's no practice in Shin Buddhism is the sort of missive people will raise, and yet we we do all of this stuff. <laughs> like And that's one of the difficulties I think when when you come into it from outside. Yeah. Because you can read the text. And you're not supposed to do anything. And then you go to a temple and you're like, you're doing all kinds of stuff. And what's the point of that? And then you start talking about, you know, the reason why we're doing it, our motivation or our intention in doing it. And then that, again, gets back to theory versus practice. Like, Mm -hmm. why are we doing this stuff? Mm -hmm. Right? So you get lost in your head and think about the motivation behind it, which is is fine. Mm -hmm. It's, I think, really important to wrestle with these questions. Mm -hmm. Um, Because ultimately, eventually, you get to that point, right, where... You get back to Shinran, who's like, you know, there is a different intention behind this because the practice has already been fulfilled, mm-hmm. you know, and, and everything you said much mm-hmm. more clearly than I could reiterate again now. Get out your um, collected works of Shinran. <laughs> <laughs> you can find it in there. <laughs> oh yeah, I'll just I'll just open just up, through it, you know, no rifle through the pages, <laughs> through this seven hundred page book that I have sitting <laughs> over here. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> There is, I think, also a caution, though, um, that what intellectual study by itself mm-hmm. is probably not sufficient. Um, and so, Shinran in Tani Show, I think it is again where um, Shinran is reported as saying, reporting that Honen was they were there and um, someone brilliant in letters, right? A very intelligent came in and they talked, and when he left, Honen is like. Wow, he doesn't get it. He's got a long way to go. And then the simple, illiterate peasant folk come in, and it's like their birth is assured. They've got it, right? So, so I think that Shinshu has a kind of um, caution built in against um, intellectual study for its own sake. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with that. But I would also one of the one of the things that I've been. Uh, ideas I've been toying with for the last couple of years in regards to academic study and thinking of it as a practice is that when you think about academic study as a practice, you have to look at that 
that practice in its totality. And I think that what people generally do is they think, oh, scholars just read books and think about stuff. And that's not true. Um, that academic study and academic practice is actually the totality of that, which includes a whole lot of social engagement. Mm. And one of the things that I think is important in Buddhism is, you know, to, to go back to the three treasures, right? It's Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. And everybody loves talking about the Buddha, and everyone loves talking about the Dharma, but no one ever talks about the Sangha. And the Sangha is just as important, I think, as those other two things. And I would interpret this as community. The interpersonal relationships that you have are also part of your practice. Mm -hmm. And the academic study of Buddhism isn't just sitting around with your tweed coat, smoking a pipe, thinking big thoughts. It's also going to conferences and engaging with the community um, and teaching and mm -hmm. that interpersonal stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's a danger. Yes, there's a, the possibility of getting lost in your head. And I know that from firsthand experience when I get really stuck on an idea and I do a lot of writing and I don't talk to anybody for three or four days and, mm -hmm. you know, it's isolating and it feels weird. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then you go out and you, you know, you interact with people and, and talk about your ideas and talk about what you're doing. And, and then you start wrestling with this stuff and that's where part of the practice and it starts happening as well. Mm. And in community with other people or, or communitas or mm. another fancy Latin fancy word. Thing. Why not? <laughs> I'm just gonna throw out all the fancy words. <laughs> but I think you're doing the same critique in a way that you're also critiquing mere intellectual study with no connection to the outer world of being with people oh, and yeah, living yeah, your yeah. life. No, I'm not saying, that yeah, that, and so, that's, yeah, I, yeah. I just wanna, uh, you know, I, I think that when you say academic study, people get stuck on just that, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I don't disagree with that. Mm -hmm. Just doing academic study for the sake of academic study and not using that work for any other purpose or not having any connection to other two, uh, three-dimensional human beings um, is... is a, a, we can include a, the two-dimensional ones too. I don't know. You know, I was just watching that Star Trek episode with the two-dimensional beings that trapped the Enterprise. And, you know, <laughs> it was bound to happen that <laughs> we'd get back to Star Trek. Um, so I don't disagree with that idea that you can get lost in your head, and that's that's there's a danger there. But I also just want to hit home, you know, like harp on this issue that that academic study, that academic practice in mm -hmm. its fullest sense that I'm using it now is mm -hmm. not limited to that. Mm -hmm. That academic wait, practice wait, wait. is more than that. It should be more than that. Mm -hmm.